Hello, and welcome back to the Court Sense Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McInnes, and this week I'm joined by Artie Wilson, whom I'm sure requires little introduction. He's a former Rainbow Warrior basketball player of the Fabulous Five era of the early 1970s, and he's been an analyst and commentator on UH Hoops TV broadcasts for more than 40 years. It's pretty staggering to think about. He comes on in a poignant moment in U.S. history, a time of social turmoil. On May 25th, an African-American man, George Floyd, was brutally killed while in custody of the Minneapolis police. It was just the latest on a too-long list of examples of police brutality against black people in this country, but it's one that went viral and served as a flashpoint. In the ensuing week, demonstrations ranging from peaceful protests to riots raged in cities coast to coast, and the incident has dominated all conversations online and on social media, amazingly relegating COVID-19 to an afterthought. So what does Artie Wilson have to say about all this? Artie, who grew up during the civil rights era of the 1950s and 60s, has rarely been one to hold his tongue, as you'll hear in the coming minutes. You can also hear what he has to say on a regular basis on his show, On Point with Artie Wilson, Friday mornings on ESPN Honolulu. But definitely stick around right now as we explore how he and we got to this point. Okay, I'm honored this week on the Court Sense podcast to be joined by Artie Wilson. He's a former UH basketball and I think baseball player as well and a longtime broadcaster for University of Hawaii basketball. Been doing it for decades now, going back to the late 70s. He was a player at UH in the early 70s. He's been in Hawaii for now most of his life. Uh, Artie Wilson, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here, Brian. Congratulations on your, your podcast and everything you're doing. Hey, man, I, I appreciate it. You know, it's, a, it's still a fledgling production over here. There's a lot of uh, things we're working out along the way. And I am just grateful to have guys like you who, who are veterans of the, uh, the broadcasting industry coming on and lending your voice. So, like I said, thank you. And uh, Artie, you come, you come on at a very interesting time in, in current events and in the world with um, it's been more than a week of, of social unrest and, and protesting across the country after the death of, of George Floyd, uh, a black man in Minneapolis at the hands of the Minneapolis police, a, a video that's you know been viewed countless times everywhere now. Um, at this moment in time, what, what is your state or, state or feeling on just everything that's happening in the country? Well, I'm, uh, I'm sad. I'm sad that at what's going on in the country. I'm sad that we're at this point in time. It's not totally unexpected, but I I would have thought that, you know, that we wouldn't have gone back to the 1960s because that's where we are right now. We're back to the 1960s. Uh, racism, unfortunately, in America is alive and well. It's a little more uh, covered. It's not as in your face, but when things like happened to George Floyd and, and a, a number of other African-Americans uh, in the last few years uh, at the hands of, of uh, just bad people who are police officers, it, it just highlights that, that we still have 
so far to go and there's so much work to be done to try and make this country a better country. Right. And as you said, it wasn't, hasn't just been George Floyd. There's been countless other incidents, um, even in just recent weeks of, of African-Americans being targeted that way, uh, sadly and unfortunately. And, um, you know, on one side right now, you see a good amount of, of peaceful protests going on where maybe even in some police, you know, offer like gestures or, or, uh, you know, symbolic reaching out and, and maybe joining them in some instances. And then on the other side, you've got the more destructive clashes with police. And, you know, we saw protesters getting tear gassed outside the white house the other day. Um, when you see like kind of that, that spectrum of, of event that's taking place, uh, what comes to mind for you? Well, what comes to mind for me is, is, uh, we, we, when I say we've got work to do, there's a lot of things that need to change in order for there to be hope and a belief that something will get better among people that, one, have been the minority for most of their lives, and two, are um, below the, the average wage limit for most of their lives and are poor. You combine someone with, with no hope being poor and being feel, felt like they've been put down and stepped on and now being killed for so long, it's difficult. It's difficult to try and, and, and have hope and have good feelings. So I'm, I'm more concerned about trying to move forward today. And, and I'm asking people that I, I talk to all the time who have been calling me, asking me my opinion on things on this is, I'm asking people, what, what are we gonna do? What can I do? What can you do, Brian? What can you do from, from May, what is this, May or June 6th, June 5th, from this point going forward, what can you do to make things better, to, to, to fight racism, to, to fight privilege, uh, a, a privileged way of living, to fight oppression and, and give people hope? It's, it's about all of us doing something collectively in order to make a change. And we need serious changes with the criminal justice system and in some of the laws, the way the laws are interpreted, the laws, way the laws are, are meted out and the punishment that comes with being poor and being black. And if you're poor and black, you got two strikes against you. You can commit the same crime or you can be accused of doing something that someone who is affluent and, and not black and that person gets off or he gets probation or he gets a very light sentence. And if you're poor and you're black, you may end up in jail for years. And it's, some, it's a cycle that continues to repeat itself. And that's, we've got to make some changes. We have got to make changes. All right. And it starts, it starts on the individual basis. Mm -hmm. I mean, you've got to do something. I've got to do something. Okay. Uh, Artie, you know, we're recording this on, on Wednesday. As of today, I think the the charge against Derek Chauvin, Chauvin, who was the police officer in the George Floyd incident with the his knee on George Floyd's neck, uh, was upgraded to, a, I guess, a second degree murder charge. And the other three officers who were with him adjacent to it, I guess, have also been charged with something. Does that does that help uh, in this moment in time? Yeah, I think it does help. I, I just uh, in my mind, I. What is the most, I guess there's laws and there's restrictions as to what a police officer can be charged, my understanding in Minnesota. So maybe second degree is 
the maximum that they could be charged as a police officer doing something in the line of in the line of duty, so to speak. But if that's not first degree murder, what is? I mean, I mean, what is it? I mean, you sat there and you looked at it and you watched it. I, I don't know about you, Brian, but when I watched it, I I kept looking at it and I and I kept replaying it and I kept thinking to myself, I'm not seeing what I'm seeing. This is not really, this is not really happening. And then for the other officers to stand by and not go, hey, hey, David, or 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 whatever Derek, his name yeah. is, Derek, hey. You, man, come on, enough. That's enough. That's enough. We, and he's under control. I mean, for them to basically shut up and say absolutely nothing is unbelievable. I mean, I, I don't know. And, and I sit there and I honestly think if I were on the sideline walking out of the store and seeing that, and I don't know this for certain, but just kind of the personality that I am and I have, I probably would have got beat up myself because I would have been like, hey, yo, man, get off of the guy. You know, I mean, most of the guys were were terrified. They were unsure. The poor girl who took the video, 17 years old, she's been crucified. She should have done more. What is she going to do? But there's the guy saying, hey, bro, come on, bro, you got to stop this. I mean, somebody should have stepped up. Now, if they stepped up, they might be dead as well. But it's, it, you can't. What is What is... Second degree murder is much better than, than third degree, but what, what constitutes first degree murder? I know there is a, a sad definition out there. I don't have it up in front of me, and, yeah. but um, Artie, you're, you're a guy, you come from a, a, a multi-ethnic, multi-racial background, right? Your, your family growing up and... Um, well, no, my mother is black and my father is black. Oh, okay. <laughs> my mom is very fair skinned, but I have, I have white blood in us from back in the day. Okay. My family is from Alabama and Georgia, and, and, and my great, great, great grandfather was white, uh, never knew him. He didn't, claim, he didn't claim the relationship with the great, great, great grandmother mm -hmm. uh, because that was during slave time. So clearly, I mean, it, it's, not, it's not hard to recognize what I have. I have green eyes, so that, that's not a predominantly black uh, trait in the genetic characteristic, but I, I grew up in a in a in a in a in a family that was black. My dad played pro baseball. He was one of the first to play in the in the in the major leagues and in in the Pacific Coast League. They had a life that they lived where they had to endure racism and prejudice. Uh, but my family didn't grow up. We didn't grow up with a chip on our shoulder or bitter. My mom and dad were were strong Christians. They were strong believers. They were strong people taught us to be respectful and to treat people fairly and, and equally and to demand being respected and treated fairly and equally. So, so I had, I had in, my, in my opinion, a perfect upbringing because I had strong parents and strong grandparents on my mother's side that you know, told us that it's the quality of the person versus the color of the person. And that's how I lived all my life growing up. Now, I, Portland, Oregon is where you were raised uh, until you yeah. were 17, yeah. 18 years yeah. old. Yeah. Grant High School. I think you were uh, same school, same time as June Jones was there with you. Yeah. Um, yep. How would you describe, I guess, Portland, you know, during that time in terms of a, like an accepting or, a, you know, a, a place to grow up? Well, Portland, Portland was fairly conservative. Uh, there were there were 
some race issues and problems in Portland, but it wasn't, it wasn't tremendous. It wasn't a tough place to grow up. Um, I, I realized looking back on it now, and I probably never recognized it at the time I was living it, my freshman year in basketball at Grand High School, we must have had 30 guys out for the team. 20 of them were black, 10 were white. My JV, when I played my the early JV uh, season, we had two JV teams, but they started separating the black, the black players and the white players. By the time I was a junior and playing varsity, that was the year we won the state championship in Oregon going 26 and one. And I didn't even think about this until recently. I looked back at that roster, there was only three black players on that team. All wow. three of us started, myself, Don Lincoln, the other starting guard and the center, Bill Flowers. Everyone else on my team was white. I never thought about that growing up. I never thought about that as an issue. And then I was reading a couple articles about race relations in different parts of the city. And it talked about Grand High School being one of the schools that was slow to integrate sports and that coach Ed Rooney, who was my coach, was one of the first guys to basically say, we're going to play the best players and we're not going to play just an all-white team. And this was back in the 60s. So, so, it's, so it's, even having, like you said, three black players on the team, that actually counted as progress at the time? Oh, that was tremendous progress because before that, you probably found one that was on the team and probably not playing. By the time I was a junior, the three of us were the stars and the starters of the team, and we ended up going 26-1. and one. All right. So was that the season, already that you guys played a Christmas tournament out here in Hawaii? No, the next year we played a Christmas tournament in Hawaii. After we won the state championship, in Oregon, the next uh, December, we came to Hawaii and played a, played a Christmas tournament here, a public school tournament against Kalani, Farrington, and Radford. And it was at Kalani, right? I read. It was at Kalani and Blaze Delery or NB, uh, HIC at the time. Okay, okay. Yeah, we played, we played it both. And we played uh, Kalani first, and they were the whole school. And uh, it was, we stayed in the homes with, with, with some of the players. Okay. And I remember June and I both went, ah, we're not doing this. So we, we ended up getting a hotel. I mean, we <laughs> felt a little bad. We stayed with a couple of the families and it was, it was very difficult to play a team. And we're coming from Portland thinking we're hot shots. We come over here and against Kalani, we just, I think we beat them by 30. And it was, it felt bad to go back to their house and have dinner with them after just beating them. Right, right. You know, and then we played Farrington. And when we played Farrington, uh, they, had, they had mostly football players, I think, although they had a guy named Steve Barrett who could play. He was a legitimate player. And, and um, who was on that team who was, who was a, uh, just a beast was Cliff LeBoy. Oh, yeah. Cliff LeBoy was on that team, and he was I mean, he was a football player trying to play basketball, and it turned into almost a brawl where we, we were literally going at each other, and it was a slow-scoring game because every, every time we drove, they beat us and physically beat us, and mm -hmm. we were beating them back, and we ended up winning only by, like, I think three points in that game. And then we played Radford, which was the defending state champ of uh, Hawaii, 
for the championship of this public school tournament and and we beat Radford pretty well the next the next game so we had we had great success against uh the three high school public school teams here and thus began my love affair with Hawaii it was unbelievable how was June as a basketball player by the way he could shoot it. He could really shoot it, and he could handle it. And at 6'4", six, 6'5", six, he played the wing, and he could shoot it deep. Before three-point shots were there, June could knock down threes real well. He had great hands, couldn't jump, really couldn't run, but the sucker could play. Right. He, uh, he, he was a competitor. So was Hawaii, I guess, actively on your, your – University of Hawaii, I should say. Were they actively on your radar at the time when you, when you took that no, when I came over here, I, I didn't even know that there was a University of Hawaii. <laughs> I, when I came here, you know, you, I, was, I was trying to decide between getting, taking a baseball scholarship or a basketball scholarship. I had about equal numbers, and I had kind of narrowed my choices down to Memphis State and University of Oregon. And um, – Actually, my mother was pushing for the Air Force Academy and different places in San Diego State and all these, to play baseball. And, and I remember deciding I was going to Oregon on a Friday. And that weekend, Bruce O'Neill came to my house and said, look, he, he brought a kind of a, a leaflet and showed pictures of, of Bob Nash and, and, and uh, Dwight Holiday and Jerome Freeman and Al Davis. Look, this is what's coming in Hawaii. You can come be a part of all this. And at that time, I had signed the Pac-8. It was the Pac-8 then uh-huh. that had been sent to Oregon. And then I signed the National, which would govern everything, to Hawaii on that weekend. And I decided I'm going to Hawaii. And uh, my mother cried. And my, everybody in my family was like, you're doing what? And I said, no, I'm going to Hawaii. And that's what started my journey to the University of Hawaii. So, and Bruce O'Neill, he was the, the top assistant for Red Rocha? Or, yeah, he or was the top assistant. Top assistant and, and probably their, their, their kind of their recruiting coordinator? Yeah, was he, yeah, he, was, he, was, he was the only guy who really went out and recruited. And, and in my opinion, and I've said this before, there's been some good, good recruiters to Hawaii. I think none are as good as what Bruce O'Neill was. His ability to sell Hawaii and sell the university and the basketball program. Remember, Bruce O'Neill brought in all of the, some of the greats, Bob Nash, Al Davis, Dwight Holiday, Jerome Freeman, myself, Melton Words, Tom Henderson, Reggie Carter, George Lett. I mean, he, Victor Kelly, Jimmy Baker, Bruce O'Neill brought in some of the best talent that has ever been here. Wow. I, I'm, by the way, I'm gonna. I saw in an art, an old article, an old clipping, some of the offers you had. You mean you mentioned Memphis State and Oregon, but you also had like Oregon State, Washington State, Portland, Portland State, Seattle. U. quite. I mean, it's a, a pretty uh, a r- impressive array that you could have. Your your future could have shot in a whole another. You know, just right. yeah, no, it combination of directions. Well, and and the decision for me, really, a lot of it was: Do I play baseball? primarily or do I play basketball and and as I I tell people quite constantly winning the state championship of Oregon and playing in front of 13,000 people as a junior in high school and walking in the 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 Portland Memorial Coliseum at the time and you know we had on our our Grant High School blazers and we had turtlenecks on we walk in and walk around and it was all ego and all hype and we were all stoked and and then you go play baseball and there's your mom and dad and your girlfriend if she really likes you and about 20 other people in the stands so the 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 
the excitement around the sport basketball became so much more exciting to me than baseball. And in, in reality, I was probably better to think about big time future to play baseball because I had a pretty good career as a baseball player in high school. Okay. Yeah. I read that you were all city in baseball. You hit over 500 as a third baseman. Maybe that was your senior year. Uh, you had like a 3.71 GPA and you served as student body president at Grant high school. Is that, is that all accurate as far as you know? Yeah. I played shortstop mostly shortstop. Okay. Yeah, shortstop. And yeah, I did. I actually had a, I think the average was like 520, 521, somewhere around there in my uh, senior year and made all city and all state uh, in both sports. Um, I was student body president, but I, I resigned that to become black student union president. Wow. Okay. So, yeah. I mean, I guess you had a little bit of that sense of activism of the time back in that, that time period. Yeah. I've always been, I think because of all that my dad went through, mm -hmm. I decided that I was going to fight for more rights than maybe he fought for. And that's not a put down on my dad. My dad was happy to play the game of baseball. He loved the game of baseball, but I probably would not have survived the stuff my dad went through and, and just played the game for the love of the game because I would have been fighting people because if it wasn't, if you're not treated right, I'd want to stand up and, and make some noise. Um, we, we had, I did resign from the student body president to be the black student union president back in, in the late sixties uh, because we had some race issues and some problems in the school and, and there were some teachers that, that we had to address and, and we took it upon ourselves to do that. I remember a teacher in my sophomore year saying, I, I didn't realize you guys could be smart. Wow. I mean, those were her exact words to me. Wow. Yeah. And here I'm a sophomore freshman in my sophomore year in high school. I'm like, what did you just say? I mean, it was almost embarrassing. And that forced me. That forced me, and actually, it, it, it drove me to academically want to excel. You know, and I was fortunate that I had parents that pressed that issue as well. And, and secretly, I wanted to be, it, I felt that was competition too. So for me, it was, I want to be the smartest guy in the class. And that was the way I always operated. Did you uh, pursue a law degree at UH? I, I read that that was your thought at least one point in time. When I got cut by the Trailblazers, I came back to Hawaii, went to an international basketball camp in um, California where they brought in 300 players and they were going to keep 40 players for this new league they were starting, the IBA. And I was fortunate enough to be one of the 40 selected after getting cut by the Blazers. And then I came back and I was told I was, I was drafted by Tel Aviv, a team in Tel Aviv. And I in got Israel. In Israel, and I got uh, in contact. They got in contact with me, and they sent me a one-way ticket over, and they sent me the contract and everything. And I'm like, okay, we need a round-trip ticket here. Uh, don't send me a one-way ticket. We need a round-trip ticket, and that became the sticking point. And at that point, I went, you know what? I'm not. I'm not. I wasn't really sure where Tel Aviv was at the time. I mean, I, I kind of I knew it was Israel, but I'm like, I'm not sure what the the dynamics are. So I'm not going someplace with a one-way ticket with a fledgling new league that was just starting without having a way to get there and get back for sure. And at that point, I was frustrated. I was on the staff at the university under Bruce O'Neill, primarily recruiting. 
believe it or not. I was out on the road recruiting. Were you? And yeah, and that was when Rick Patino was here, Pete Gillen was here, Al Menendez was here, and I was on the staff with Bruce O'Neill. No kidding. Were- I never knew that. Yeah, we were all on the staff together, and I was recruiting the West Coast. And I had Johnny Nash, James Woods, Carl Irving, and one other guy. I can't think of his name now. Uh, Juwan Odom. Those four guys would be considered the top four of the top 20 West Coast players. And they were all committed to come to Hawaii. And then all the NCAA thing, all that happened. And they all went elsewhere. Two went to CLU, one went to Washington, one went to Arizona State. Those four guys were great players. I'm not talking good. They were great players. I had them all committed to coming to Hawaii. And then everything happened. And uh, Larry Little got the job. And he told me at that time, um, keep the recruiting going. I'm going to keep you on my staff. Keep the recruiting going. And then three weeks, uh, two weeks after he tells me that, I get an offer to go coach at Iowa State University with, with uh, Lynn Nance, who just got the job. Lynn Nance was the coach at Washington. I had beat him recruiting those guys out of Seattle for Hawaii. And when he got the job at Iowa State University, he called me and said, I want you to be my number one assistant. Will you come and join me? And I went, man, Ames, Iowa, or staying in Hawaii. And Larry Lowe told me I had the job here. I called Lynn Nance. I said, eh, you know, I'm going to be in Hawaii. I appreciate the offer, but I'm going to stay in Hawaii. Two weeks later, Larry Lowe comes back and says, I got, I'm letting you go. <laughs> okay. He said, I'm letting you go. And I went, Lynn, C- Coach Nance, uh, is there an opportunity? He already filled this position. And at that point, Brian, I said, I'm done with that. I'm going to law school because I don't want to deal with craziness anymore. And I, I took my LSATs and got accepted to university law school. I actually had an NCAA postgraduate scholarship. They gave it to people who had done well in, in undergraduate work. And I had a scholarship that I was awarded. And I was going to UH Law School. I sold one of my professors a condominium because a good friend told me, get your real estate license. That's the first half of law school and you'll be ahead of everybody. And I sold a condo to a professor, got a $1,300 check, thought I had died and went to heaven and that was it. I've been in real estate ever since. So you didn't even need to, need to finish that law degree up. I didn't, right? even, I didn't even get to law school. I didn't even get <laughs> into school. I decided to take a year off from going to school and to work in real estate. And that's been, you know, 40 plus years now. All right. Well, the other half maybe of your professional career that people know you for is, is your broadcasting for University of Hawaii basketball, most recently on Spectrum Sports. Before that, you did K5. And I think you K-H-L. did like a, Right. And all the, the various iterations over the years, over the decades. So late seventies, right. Is when you first when started. started, maybe that Larry Little era is kind of, kind of when you started doing that. Yeah, it was back during the Larry Little era, uh, which was a little awkward because here's a guy who, who offered me a job. Um, and if, if I had a, got the job and been with him, life would have been totally different for me. I'd be in coaching now probably. I, I imagine I, I probably would have had a head job somewhere by now. But when he offered me the job, I was fully committed to working in basketball and trying to recruit for the University of Hawaii. And, and it, it worked out. I mean, I'm, I'm not unhappy with my life and my career, but it could have gone a whole different direction if he had honored his uh, 
his commitment to me. I'm going to read a quote that you said in, in a newspaper clipping in the, I think it was your senior year, maybe 1974, a feature article on you about Ooh. where you see, saw yourself going at the time. You said, I don't want to work for anybody because I like the feeling of freedom. I'd rather go out and try to help people. Yeah, that, that, I mean, I could, I, I said a lot of crazy things back when I was young, <laughs> but that was, uh, that was pretty much true. I, I always felt like I'm more of a leader than part of a pack. And, and if I can help somebody, it wasn't about money. It was about making a difference. And I, I grew up thinking like that. And I grew up being that way. And a lot of that was directed by my mom and dad and my grandfather and, and association and friendships that I have. It's always been that way. So, I mean, you were able to do your own thing, obviously, with your real estate and yeah. to this day. And um, but as far as let's go back to the broadcasting real quick. Like, is that something you even thought you might be interested in? How did that begin? Like, did somebody approach you? I, I think it was Rick Blanjardi and Jim Leahy that talked to me about, hey, come, you want to do a game with uh, Leahy? And I had no clue what I was doing. And, and I and I remember I got called by I want to say it was KGMB to go to Kansas City and broadcast the Chaminade game. They were in the Kansas City tournament and Les Kider was there and Mike Baskin-Salas was the athletic director. And they asked me if I would fly up and do the game with uh, Mike Baskin-Salas and, and Les Kider. And I just remember going up there and going, sure, I'll do it. And I had no idea what I was doing and, and Thank, thank God for Leahy and Les Kider and Blanjardi and all those guys who, who stuck with me. I learned the, the business a little bit, and, and now I'm able to, to do it with Kanoa, and it's been, a, it's been a blessing. It's been fun doing, but I was very raw and not aware of a whole lot of things back in the day, but I, I survived. Well, I mean, these days we see a lot of, you know, recent former players or guys who have playing experience switching it up and going behind the, the microphone, so, so to speak, you know, relying on their, the experience of their playing days and reading the game, feeling the game and, and, you know, transferring that through the microphone out to the people. Like, is that something you were able to at least get by on? Do you think in those early times? Yeah, because I know the game of basketball and, and I, I was, I think I was a, a smarter player than I was athletic. And I, 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 I hope you understand what I mean. I, I think my, my greatest gifts as a player was I was tough, I was physical, I wanted to guard the best player on the opposition. I, I, I desired that. And I want, whether he was a point guard or a shooting guard or a small forward, Bruce always put me on the best player on the other team. And that was my mission was to shut him down. But it wasn't because I, I was the best shooter or the best, it was because I, I had the want to. And, and uh, I think broadcasting, I try and sh share and paint a picture and show and talk about the things that happen inside, between the lines, in players' minds. And I can look at a player, and even now I can look at players and look in their eyes and tell you who is ready to compete at the highest level and who is not because the eyes tell everything.
Mm-hmm. I remember shaking hands. Tom Henderson and I used to talk about this all the time. We go out before the game. We stand there and we look at the other team, the other guards. We're getting ready to play, and we look at them to see if they look, how they looked at us. If they tried to avoid looking at us, that told us everything we need to know. If they had steely eyes and they looked at it, we said, okay, we're going to be in for a dogfight. But if they, were, if they cowered at all by us looking at them, oh, we, we understood we had their lunch money. Okay, that was just the way it is. And even now, I look at a guy on the court right now, and I can tell you, I can pretty much tell you which players on the opposing team have the heart of a dog who will get out there and fight to win and which players don't have that. And, and, and it's, all, it's all in the eyes. To back up what you were saying about taking the top defensive assignment game in, game out, you were named – uh, the Hawaii best defensive player for the postseason team awards your junior and senior year, 72, 73, and the 73, 74 season. So uh, you weren't bluffing on that one. I think that's uh, that was apparent from what I read as well. And kind of an all-around guy. I mean, I think averaged in the low double figures a game, right, and, and provided some assists, some rebounding. Um, you got to play alongside Tom Henderson. As you mentioned, he's arguably the best player in, in Hawaii history. Uh, for your last two years. What was kind of that like? And looking at some box scores, I found it looked like you guys were able to rack up assists back and forth and uh, had some real rhythm there. Yeah, we had, we had uh, my junior, senior years were, for me, I mean, great years because playing with Tom for two years, uh, between the two of us, we probably averaged, I'm going to say, 10 assists a game, just the two of us. 10 to 12 assists a game. There was games where he gets seven assists, I get five, or games I get seven assists and he get five. Um, we, we ran the break really well. We had a team that went up and down the floor, and we played a style of basketball that was fun. I, I was looking at it because um, they did a tremendous 100-year anniversary celebration um, uh, memoirs book, uh, and I was looking at it and realized that the my junior and senior year were the highest attendance average in the history of the University of Hawaii. Both those years set the record for the most people watching basketball at UH, and I think it was like 73, 7,500 every night that came to the, the, the Neil Blaisdell to watch. And it would have been more if Blaisdell was larger. Mm-hmm. And that was came, about capacity, and, right? That was capacity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was sold out every game, and, and it was live TV, and it was partly because of the style we played. I think that team that, that I played on that had Boyd Bats and, and Rod Aldrich and Melton Words and Tom and I, and then we had Marvin Vidito and Skip Williams and Keith Bowman. Um, I think those were, or that was one of the premier teams uh, that has played here because we had not only size, we had speed, and we had, we had a bunch of Bulldogs on that team that would, that would fight to win. And these were some of the, not the last days before Hawaii joined a a conference, the WAC, uh, which happened around, I think, 1980 or so, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. um, These were, you know, you're playing independently in Division I. You're you're playing probably doubleheaders against teams when they come in, right? Back to back, you play the same team twice. You play Friday, Saturday nights. We play Florida State Friday night, come back, play them Saturday. Play right. Oregon State Friday night, come back, play them Saturday. We, we traveled. Brian, you got to understand. Let, let me describe a trip that we took. Okay. We traveled Honolulu to California, California to Texas, Texas to Alabama, 
Alabama to Connecticut, Connecticut to Oregon, and then back to Hawaii. Sounds fun. That's a heck of a road trip. And the beauty, the beauty of that, when we were traveling with Bruce O'Neill, we stayed in classy five-star <laughs> hotels. We didn't stay in any dumps. There was no Motel 6 or, 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 or uh, I mean, it was nice hotels. We, we would go to a hotel, and if it wasn't nice, they said, we're not staying here. We'd go down the street and find something really nice. And, and uh, it, was, uh, it was fun. We had a good time. So, Artie, I mean, you got to play in, in obviously, some of the real glory years of the program. You, you overlapped with the Fab Five and Tom Henderson, as we just talked about. You know, is it, when you look back, is it a shame? You know, I mean, everything kind of blew up. You mentioned the NCAA came down on Bruce O'Neill when he became head coach. Like, that the program couldn't maintain, you know, the momentum of those times through, like, the end of the 70s into the 80s. After that, there was a lot of rebuild. And, and then only maybe more recently in the, you know, mid-90s, and on as the program kind of regained some of that footing. Yeah, it, it, it's frustrating for me because I know how great this place can be for basketball. And in my mind, just being a little bit better than 500 is not reaching the success heights that it should reach. I, I've always said, you know, the, the one above 500 is not enough. And it's been frustrating to see the program kind of be average because it can be so special. This place can be incredible incredible for basketball uh, if you bring in the right talent and you, you, you bring in the quality athletes that have a desire and want to, to be the best they can be uh, and not just be happy to be in college. I mean, there, to me, there's a lot of guys that come in at University of Hawaii in recent years that they're just happy to be in college and once they're done, they're happy to go home. You, you want guys to come in to play that desperately want to be a professional, wanting to, they strive to be the best they can be. I mean, it's their, their way out of the, 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 the ghetto. It's their way out of poverty. It's their way to help their family because they will do everything they can to try and have success. When guys come in and they've got, uh, you know, father with a, with a trust fund and they, I mean, they, they all play not quite as hard because they have, they have a safety net. They have, they have opportunities. And, and that's, not, that's not begrudging anybody that has that. But you, you blend somebody that's really hungry with somebody that's a good person and, and has, has a safety net. Now you have something pretty special. And I think that's, uh, that's kind of what I'd like to see. And hopefully that will happen again. Hawaii can be. I've said this. I think Hawaii should be the top dog in the Big West year in and year out we have the nicest arena we have the greatest place to recruit to and there's no reason we shouldn't be always playing for number one well there is a large recruiting class coming in on that note i think seven signees for for coach aranganat this off season going back to the fall he's picked up a few more recently do you have any thoughts on on some of the guys that they've brought in whether it's jovan mcclanahan out of junior college or uh, beyond Ja Riley out of out of high school or um, the Wally Bales out of Australia, any of those guys jump out to you? You know, I I've I've, I've heard that McConaughey is a legitimate guard. I've heard that he's uh, he's got a little chip on his shoulder. He's five ten, five eleven. He's so he's a little guy who's got a little toughness in him, which I like. Any any guard that comes in here that's under six foot, you better be. You better be special because you can't be small and be a nice guy. And that, I mean, I don't mean it 
that you, you're a jerk, but you, you better have a little chip on your shoulder if you're 5'10", 5 5'11". 5 so I hear he, he's that kind of guy that I would like. Now, I haven't seen him play in person, so I reserve uh, final opinions until I see him. But I hear he's, he's a competitor and he wants to play and wants to do, do well. I hear the kid from Montreal, Canada, that they just signed, James. Uh, Jean-Marie. Jean-Marie at 6'8", mm-hmm. is, a, is a legitimate player. He's got some size and he's physical. And, and I, I've heard that uh, Cass Jardine mm-hmm. is, is a guy who at 6'7", is a real shooter and can play the game of, of basketball. He's out of Utah Valley. Mm-hmm. I'm hopeful that these guys come in here and elevate the program to a higher level because we're in the Big West. The Big West is not the most dominant conference in America. Big West is on the lower end as far as quality and competition. If we're going to be in this conference, we need to be the dominant player. I think what they've done for these seven guys, Brian, is – They've, they've thrown away their, their blueprint of let's go get the 6'11", 7-footers, let's go get the 6'6", 6'7", 6'8", athletes, and let's see if we can do a little bit more with that. I've always thought that was the best way to go because I'd take a 6'8 guy who can run and jump over a 7-footer who can't get up and down the floor any day. So I'm hopeful that this, this group of new signees will bring a new, uh, a new look and a new, uh, a new flavor to the University of Hawaii basketball. And as you referenced, two of the three seven-footers that have been here the last couple of years have, have transferred out basically or gone pro, them being Dawson Carper and Owen Hullen. So Mate Cholina being the last of that kind of traditional seven-foot big man on the roster. And it, it could be useful to have you know, him in, in that being able to, to come in in that sense, that traditional big man sense against certain matchups. But as you said, I mean, I think there's something to be said or be had about having that level of athleticism or versatility there. Yeah, I think that's important. I, I, to be quite honest with you, if the three that we had last year, Dawson Carper, Owen Hullen, and Mate Cholina, I personally thought Dawson Carper was the guy that I thought, given a red shirt year and some real work on getting his body in, in shape and, and, and working on speed and quickness and different things, I thought he would have an opportunity to be special uh, in his junior and senior season. And I was somewhat disappointed that he chose to leave because I thought of the three bigs, he wasn't the best shooter, but he was more your old school big. Mm-hmm. and Knew what he was good at. Yeah, there were times that he, he did some things I think pretty special. He did, and he, he actually helped them win a game uh, at Riverside, I think, this year. He had the winning tip-in or, yeah. or basket in the final seconds. And, yeah. um, you know, Owen Holland, we saw him against UCLA just for, you know, on the road for a few minutes last the previous year, and he had his best game as a, as a freshman. Um, and that was like, you know, like a solar eclipse or something. That was like the one glimpse we saw him and then it was in fact injuries and, and not playing so that was unfortunate for him as and, well and and he can go from not playing for two years and he turned pro well <laughs> i mean best of luck to him I, you know if he can latch on back home in australia he is one of the australians that that came in from there uh, i don't know Artie, but I, we we've been without sports for so long we're, we're kind of grasping at whatever little thing we can talk about right and uh the good news today was the NBA, I think just uh, Adrian Wojnarowski for ESPN uh, uh, reported that 
they have the go-ahead now to, to complete the NBA season. They're At the end of the month, they're going to go ahead with 22 teams over there at Disney World in Orlando, go through August, or I, I think October maybe, for the playoffs, do kind of a traditional 16-team playoffs plus, let's see, six other teams, so 22 teams total to figure out their field for the playoffs. How do you feel about that? I think there's going to be no crowds, but looks like they're, they're going ahead with NBA basketball. Yeah, it's going to be very different to not play in front of crowds. And, and uh, we'll find out which players are playing for, for the pride factor themselves and their teammates because there are, you know, we, you, you talk about this and sometimes we talk about guys who are practice players and some guys who in front of a crowd or bright lights, they, they raise their game. Now we're going to have to see which guys want to play uh, every night in front of nobody other than, than your teammates and the coaching staff and, and the referees and, and officials. Um, it will be different. I'm, I'm happy that the NBA is, is coming alive again. I'm hopeful that, that all major sports can, can get back to some sense of, of production uh, I, I just worry that if there is an outbreak or if there is someone that's uh, diagnosed with uh, COVID-19 or tested positive, I'm not sure how that's going to impact things or if it's just going to be an isolated case and move them mm-hmm. off the side and keep going. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think anyone really knows. But for me, it's good to see because I'm sick of watching reruns of, of Leave it to Beaver, etc. Is is that what's in, been in the rotation for you? Oh my gosh, it's been rough. I've it's, seen. It sounds like it. Yeah, Canadian Mounted Police. I mean, it's been rough. <laughs> it sounds like you're diving deep, but as <laughs> have we all, I guess, in one way or another. Um, well, Artie, you know what? It's been a great having you on and and sharing some of those memories of that time. I guess you know one of the last things I'll ask you here is either from your your time as a player, you know, back in that Fab Five era or maybe as a broadcaster, what's kind of been, you know, is there like a singular moment, I guess, that that's kind of crystallized in your mind about one of the best things you, you've witnessed or been a part of with the Hawaii basketball program? Well, probably um, being in New York City, Madison Square Garden for the NIT experience when I was a sophomore. Uh, or no, I'm sorry, when I was a, a junior. Or a junior senior, uh, senior, yeah, you senior. guys made the NIT your senior yeah. year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then uh, going to play in the NCAA tournament when I was a sophomore, right. although that ended in disaster. And Weber I, State, I, right? Weber State. We, 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 silly, we were silly and, and overlooked Weber State thinking about playing UCLA and just got embarrassed by Weber State. And if we played Weber State 10 times, They'd win one game, uh, but they won the game that mattered against us because we were all looking toward UCLA. Uh, that was a high and a low, but just that experience of being on that NCAA team. And then my senior year playing in the NIT in the Madison Square Garden. And, and I think we would have had a legitimate shot to win the NIT that year if they had not declared Boyd Bats ineligible mm. for postseason. We, we lost Purdue, I think ended up winning it, and we beat Purdue in the Rainbow Classic that same year. You did. And, and we ended up losing uh, uh, in the NIT because they declared Boyd Bats ineligible, ineligible because of some, some transcript from his junior college. Uh, but they didn't bring that up until postseason. 
So those, those were two of the greatest highlights. And then some of my experiences going around broadcasting with, with Jim Leahy and, and now Kanoa, uh, I've had some, some wonderful trips and times with, with all of you guys. I mean, you're on the media. I mean, you, you've been there and we've, we've, we've uh, seen and enjoyed some of the real highs in Hawaii. And we've been there for some of the absolute lows. And I think you will agree with me. It's a whole lot more fun when they're high. You know, <laughs> it's a lot more fun because you don't want to criticize players, young 18, 19, 20-year-olds, 21-year-olds, because they listen to the broadcast. And I find that I, I talk to the guys a lot. You know, I, I have a personal relationship with most of the players, and I'll ask them, are you, are you pissed at us sometimes? Are you mad at me sometimes when I criticize? And, and to a man, now they may tell their friends something else, but to a man, they all have said to me, I appreciate what you say because you tell the truth and you call it the way it is. And sometimes I don't like it, but at least I know you're telling the truth. And that for me is the highest level of compliment. And I appreciate that. Now, some of the coaching staff probably doesn't like some of the stuff I say, but they, they get paid to accept that criticism. I just want to make sure I always give players the due respect that they do and they deserve because I was once that player and I was 18 or 19 or 20 years old. And sometimes what someone will say at that age stays with you an awful long time. Well, Artie. Thanks so much for sharing some of your time and your insight. And as we started the podcast by talking about during a very unique time, I guess, in, you know, that's going to be in the history of our country. I think this month, month and ongoing, however long this lasts, will will maybe be looked back on as a seminal moment one way or the other. Yeah, no question about it. And Brian, I, I just challenge all of, uh, all of your listeners, all the people listening to this podcast, Think about what you and I and all of us can do to be difference makers, to make things better so that there is, there is less racism, so that there is more uh, uh, cooperation and love and togetherness because it is still real. It's not in your face as much, but when you see what happened to George Floyd and others, change is needed and it's needed now. All right, my friend. All right, Good buddy. talking to you. Take care. God bless. Take care. You too, Artie.